This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Traditionally, because Canada is never in the World Cup, it has never been a difficult decision for who you're going to support. If you come from a German background, probably you're going to support Germany and you've got the German flag up there. If you come from Portugal, if your family background is from Portugal, you probably are going to cheer for Portugal or maybe Brazil. No problem. Italy, we certainly know how the Italy support is around Hamilton. When Italy is playing in the World Cup, they're not in the World Cup this year. But when Italy is in the World Cup, we understand what James Street looks like. The Italian flags are up, the bars are filled, the Italians of Italian background are there cheering. What's going to happen, however, when Canada's in? Let me bring John McGrain. John McGrain is a sports, a soccer Hall of Famer, a sports Hall of Famer. He's a soccer coach. He's a general manager. He played in the Olympics. Uh, he joins us now. John, thanks for doing this today. Oh, it's my pleasure. What a great day. It is a great day. Now, before I get to all that, I want to go back to the question I was just asking. When we get to the uh, World Cup in 2026, and presumably if Canada has a team in that event, is it going to be difficult for people to decide which flag to hang up when Canada is playing Italy or Canada is playing Germany or Canada is playing Portugal? Or do you think it's going to be difficult for people to choose to hang a Maple Leaf instead of the country they've traditionally hung up and cheered for? I think probably about 20, 30 years ago that might have been the case. Uh, today I would probably say no. Uh, I think a lot of people today are very, very nationalistic towards Canada. I mean, keep in mind, they're probably now third-generation Italians, third-generation uh, English or Portuguese. Uh, I mean, if you went to the Canada-Germany game, uh, it, it gave you a really good idea that, uh, that uh, to them, this is all about Canadian soccer. So I, I think by the time 2026 comes along, it's going to be even more accentuated that uh, this is Canada and nothing but Canada. So if Canada ends up drawing Italy in a in the same round, same uh, group, in 2026, and you drive up James Street, all those bars are going to have Canadian flags, not Italian flags? Oh, I believe so. Wow. All right. All right. I, well, well, let me, let me kind of uh, quantify that a little bit. The grandfathers will have the Italian flags. Their kids will have the Canadian flags. It's, uh, that'll make for some interesting family dynamics. Will it ever? <laughs> Especially in my house. Well, it, Scotland's got to get there, though. Uh, yeah, well, let's, let's cancel that one out then. <laughs> John, the World Cup starts tomorrow, as I said, 11 a.m. tomorrow, our time, Soviet, uh, Soviets, well, that, uh, we're talking about grandfathers, now I'm being a grandfather, the Russians <laughs> play against Saudi Arabia. Do we need to play this game and the others, or can we simply give the trophy before the tournament starts to Brazil and just all go home? Because everything I've read says, every expert says Brazil is winning this thing. Well, it's like anything else. I mean, whenever you have a to- when you have a knockout competition, uh, unlike what you were seen in the Stanley Cup, where you've got best of seven and so forth, uh, when you have a best of three, best of five, uh, best of seven, you know, to me, the cream always rises to the top. The best team always wins. But when you get a knockout competition, I mean, there's a lot of things that can happen. Second part is, is that a lot of it has to do winning the World Cup is really not so much about the best 11 you have on the field. It really comes down to the best 18 or 19 players in your squad. Because you're playing upwards of uh, eight to nine games in a, in, a 30, in a 30-day period. So you're going to get injuries, you're going to get loss of form, uh, you're going to get exhaustion. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can happen. But on paper, which is what we're talking about right now, I mean, 
Brazil is, is without a doubt probably the premier team in the world. But I think there's a couple of teams out there that is going to give them uh, a run for their money. Uh, you know, I think there's teams like France. I think Belgium is, uh, has got players that four years ago should have done something but didn't. This year, they've, uh, the, these players have matured. Uh, you never count out Germany in any tournament. And uh, uh, I, my my favorite team to watch in this tournament with great uh, with great attention is going to be France. So, although we we've got our fingers crossed uh, that uh, we're going to watch the great Brazilian sides of the past, uh, I think there's a lot of soccer to be played. You mentioned four teams there. I think if my math was correct, are those the four legitimate contenders, or are there others? No, I think you've got, you never count out uh, Spain. Uh, uh, I think the Spaniards, uh, you know, over the last 10 years, are probably the most celebrated uh, champions uh, in the world and, and in Europe. Uh, the other team that you don't count out is the team that has the best player in the world, which is Portugal. You know, he's got Ronaldo. And then you've got the second best player in the world, Messi, who's playing with a very talented Argent- Argentine side. So, uh I still think when the quarterfinals come around, when you've got the eight best teams in the world playing, I, when you get to that moment, uh, I anticipate these teams, one way, shape, or form, will be in that last eight. And uh, regardless of what anybody says, it's going to be a flip of the coin. Okay, on the other end, how many teams are there that don't have any chance whatsoever because of the way the qualifying is regionally that they're there, but they really don't even belong there? Well, any time that you move, you know, to a 32-team format, you're going to get teams who really are out of their depth. Uh, it's even going to be more accentuated when they go to a 48-team uh, World Cup. But you, you're looking at teams like Costa Rica and Panama. Uh, you're looking at the Iranians. Uh, Saudi Arabia is, is, is probably, uh, you know, may have an opportunity to get out of their group. Depends on how well they play tomorrow. Uh, so these are the kind of teams that, that, that come from that part of the world that, that may really struggle. Uh, other than that, I mean, you even talk about Egypt. I mean, up until the emergence of uh, Mohamed Salah, uh, one would have said, you know, Egypt has no chance. But I tell you what, to me, he's the, the he should be the perennial Ballon d'Or uh, winner this year as the, as the best player uh you know, in Europe or in the world. And uh, so Egypt, I think, if he's got Salah on uh, on form and a couple of players that are playing for them, it's going to be tremendously exciting. Uh, but again, in a knockout situation, anything is possible. Certainly around here, the absence of Italy uh, is big news because, again, we talked off the top, so many Italian fans here. Uh, it does seem, though, John, even if beyond here, that not having Italy in a World Cup kind of seems like having a an Olympic hockey tournament in Canada not making it there. I mean, it seems shocking almost. It is shocking, but you know what? Sometimes a nation needs to have a wake-up call, and I think Italy got it. And they're not alone. Uh, you know, you've got Holland, who have right. been perennial yes. you know, finalists. They were, if I'm not mistaken, they were in the final four years ago. Yeah, I forgot about Holland, you're right. And, and, and Holland is, didn't even make it through the qualifying stages. So certain countries have to reset and they have to look at the way they're playing and the type of coaching that's available and, you know, the, uh, the development of the players they have in their system. So, but you're right. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I, I'm not a great fan of Italian football, but you have to give them great credit for the, 
you know, what they've been able to achieve over the last 50, 60 years. Uh, so it won't be the same without having Italy there. But as you're probably wondering why I haven't mentioned England, uh, you know, they went through the qualifying stages without uh, losing a game and, uh, you know, highly rated in England, not so much outside of England. I think they'll, uh, as much as I'm, you know, I'm, I'm supporting them and I'm hoping that they do well, but I think they may end up being the big disappointments of the World Cup. That, that's happened a few times, though. Yeah, but I'm, I'm even talking in the early stages. Uh, you know, I, I hope I'm wrong on this uh, because I'm a great fan of Premier League soccer. I watch all these English players play. And, uh, you know, and, but I just look at it right now and I'm saying to myself, do they reach the level of some of the teams that are out there right now, uh, you know, that have the ability to go far in the World Cup? And I just don't see it. Uh, John, we have now eight years now, this tournament starts tomorrow, but we have eight years to get our Canadian team in order, because Canada's not in this this time. We have eight years to get our team sorted out and to get a team onto the field that is going to be competitive and that is going to uh, not win the World Cup. No one's expecting that, but to, to put a, a, a decent team on the field so that we can look good in the eyes of the world. Is that going to happen? Well, there's, there's certain things that have happened up to this point that was waiting on Canada, you know, having a, a joint bid accepted as a host for the World Cup. The most important thing is, is that the Canadian Premier League, which is now being officially announced uh, as the, uh, the feeder system and their own professional league in Canada, that's hugely important. Uh, there'll be an announcement coming up uh, about Hamilton's inclusion in this league in, in the next number of weeks. Uh, that is that is probably the most important thing. With in the absence of uh, a Canadian Premier League, uh, we wouldn't have an opportunity to produce. I would consider a decent team eight years from now. But with the advent of the CPL, I believe that in the next four years we'll be competing for a spot in Qatar uh, or Qatar, uh, and and uh, and that's absolutely essential. That said, are we, uh, we don't have, and I don't know why we haven't had, we don't have any star Canadian players. We've been able to produce stars in every other sport, I think, just about every other sport. We've not been able to do it in soccer despite vast numbers of kids. And we don't have a Canadian professional basketball league. We don't have a Canadian professional whatever else. Why have we not been able to find that player that we can build a program around, at least not in the last two or three decades? Oh, it's quite simple. It's got to do with money. I mean, although the fact that we don't produce great Canadian soccer players, but we do produce great Canadian hockey players, we do produce outstanding Canadian basketball players in the NBA. Uh, Joey Votto is one of the top uh, major League Baseball players in America, and he's a Canadian lad from Toronto. Yep. I mean, I can go on to a multitude of different sports. We produce great athletes. But when they get to a certain age, they look at the landscape and they say, well, okay, I'm an elite athlete. Uh, you know, how would you like to have Andy DeGrasse playing on the right wing for you? Okay? But these guys look at us and they say, where am I going to make my money? Where's my career? Where can I really put my mark and, and, and cash in on this? And to this particular point, the absence of a Canadian professional league has limited the amount of Canadian players in the soccer world 
that we can utilize. They all go to different sports and they become multimillionaires in those sports. Once we put the Canadian Premier League in place and you can give people an opportunity to say, this is a pathway to a career where you will, over the next four or five years, make very big money and get an opportunity to play in Europe or any place else. Then I think when you get these kids at eight and nine, because don't forget, all these hockey players and all these baseball players, when they're growing up as eight, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old kids, they're all playing soccer. All of them. So I think if we can give them an opportunity to say, you know what, you can continue your career in soccer and make big money and become a multimillionaire. Once we're at that point, and it's all about money, we will encourage people to not go into hockey, not to go into basketball, uh, and go into soccer. That is when the soccer world landscape will change. Just before we go, uh, and I appreciate that, and I appreciate you joining us, uh, The four years ago, the game of the World Cup, I think, and not because it was a great game, just because it was the most shocking game maybe in, I don't know, 25, 30, 40 years, was the semifinal Germany beat Brazil 7-1. to I think it was probably the biggest humiliation Brazil has ever suffered. They are lined up that they could potentially meet each other in the round of 16. Is that the one match that everybody wants to see this, this time around? Well, if I was a Brazilian, I'd sure as hell want it. <laughs> yeah. uh, if I was a Brazilian player who played in that game, I would sure as hell want it. Uh, whenever you knock a champion down, especially a champion with a, a massive pedigree, uh, you know that these guys are going to get back up again and they're going to get back up stronger. And they have probably for the last four years, uh, that has been the motivating factor because if Can- when Canada gets knocked out of Olympic tournament in hockey uh, or World Cup tournament in hockey and they come back to Canada, they're basically pariahs. They can't walk the street. People are probably booing them and people in their hometowns are saying, what the heck happened? So they've had to live with that humiliation for four years. Brazil, soccer... The Brazilian national team are gods. So they've been waiting for four years for that to happen. And I can guarantee you one thing, that don't be too surprised if the score is reversed in the other direction, not necessarily 7-1, but it will be uh, a game for the century to watch how Brazil reacts to play against. Yeah, they, won't hold, they won't hold off if they have a chance to run it up. Oh my God, no! If they can get to fourteen, they'll do it. Uh, you know, but John, I was uh, the one thing I was surprised by, and pleasantly surprised. And maybe times have changed, but I remember a number of years ago when a Colombian player, Escobar, scored on his own net and was killed when he got home. I'm not being funny. I'm glad nothing bad happened to any of the Brazilian players because I actually thought about that Escobar guy when when this happened. I thought, man, this, the way they take soccer in some parts of the world, I am fearful. Honestly, I was fearful for some of those Brazilian players. How do you think the Italians felt when they never qualified for the World Cup? I mean, yeah. I would have thought somebody from Sicily would have drove up somewhere in Italy and popped some of these guys off. Uh, I, so, and we, we would, say it like people, talking, yeah, people sorry. think we're being facetious. No, this is true. It's true. It's really oh, true. Absolutely. It's a national humiliation. It's like losing a war. Uh, as far as Colombia is concerned, I mean, when you've got guys like Pablo Escobar and all the stuff that went on at that particular time, uh, they took it personally and. What happened to that poor that poor guy Escobar was, I mean that was one of the reasons why one of the great players on that team was a guy called Valderrama. You know, had this guy with the big bushy uh, mm. afro. I think it was orange. And as soon as that happened, he went straight to America and played in America. He wouldn't come back to uh, to uh, Colombia because he feared for his life, because they thought that these guys were throwing it for money, which was totally ridiculous. 
But uh, no, there are certain parts of the world where it is religious, and uh, it, it just shows a lot of class for the Brazilian people that they didn't take it to the next level. But I am anticipating this World Cup uh, after the group stages. The group stages I'm not a big fan of uh, because you get some good teams play against some bad teams. But when it gets to the the next round and then the quarterfinals and then to me that is what the games that's what the beautiful game is all about. That's when you see the real the real quality. And uh, I, I hope I see Portugal versus Argentina, Ronaldo versus Messi. There's so many matchups that I'm looking for that, uh, that it's worth the price of admission to sit down there and watch that game. And I would encourage anybody who's not a soccer fan, but wait until the quarterfinals and you will watch what the beautiful game is all about. John McGrain, always appreciate your time, sir. Thanks for doing this. Always nice to talk to you. You take care of yourself. That is good. We will not be here seeing John. He will be holed up in a bunker now for the next five or six weeks, unable to be reached as he watches soccer 24 hours a day. Something like that, right? Oh, well, my wife will be a soccer widow, that's for sure. (laughs) John McGrain, appreciate the time. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Now, I don't know if you have noticed, uh, I certainly have, but I don't know if you've noticed that there seems to be a lot more discussion about depression these days. And it has puzzled me because I can't tell if this is simply the result of a greater awareness of the issue of the disease and therefore an increased willingness to talk about it, or if there is just more of it than there used to be. Are we more open to it or are we just more surrounded by it. I don't know the answer to this. I'm not sure anybody knows for sure what the answer is. However, a new study that the results were released this week may suggest at least a hint, may point us in maybe part of a direction to be able to answer at least that part of it. According to this research, one in three Americans are taking prescription and over-the-counter medications that have as their possible side effects Depression. These are American numbers, but there's no reason to think they're vastly different from Canada. I don't think that our drug usage, legal drug usage, is much different than what we would find south of the border. But if you follow the logic then, if one in three of us are now using prescription medicines or over-the-counter medicines that could lead to depression, does it not follow that at least some percentage of those will suffer those side effects, which could, I guess, potentially account for what seems to be a much, much greater number of people who are dealing with this. One of the, the authors, the lead author of this study is Dr. Dina Cato, who is Assistant Professor of Pharmacy Systems Outcomes and Policy at the University of Illinois in Chicago. She joins me now. Dr. Cato, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, of course. Uh, this, this could be, could it not uh, be at least part of the answer to why we are seeing so many more cases of depression these days? Well, I, I, our study didn't prove that or, or suggest that, you know, part of the growing suicide rate or pre- prevalence, uh, the burden of, of depression in the U.S. or Canada, for that matter, is related to medication use, but it does imply that the more medications that have depression or suicidal symptoms as a side effect, one uses the more likely they are to report symptoms of depression. Um, so I hesitate to say uh, that it, it's causing this this problem, but I think it warrants further attention. Absolutely. And 
con- consideration by you know healthcare professionals, policymakers, and the public. Well, absolutely. And again, in the intro, I mean, what I sort of am thinking is it seems to me, and maybe you differ, I don't know, but it seems to me that we do have a lot more of it around us these days, whether that's just because people are talking or whether because it exists. But I don't know that we've had an answer yet for why that's the case. And this seems to be as as compelling, a, a, at least a theory, I suppose, as any. I, I, w- I would have to agree with that. I think it really requires us to kind of think carefully when we use, when we get prescribed, or when we um, self-medicate with medications, that they're, while many have benefits, they also have adverse effects and side effects, including depression and suicidal risks that we have to carefully consider um, when we take them. I was reading today that suicides are up 30% in the past two decades. I'm not sure where that number came from, but do we see a uh, a consistent increase in the amount of non, uh, prescription drugs and over-the-counter drugs in that time? Have we seen a large increase in the usage of these medications in that time period? We have. So our study showed that we've seen an increase in the use of medications in general. We've seen an increase in the use uh, of medications that have depression as a side effect. But what was most interesting is that the increase um, and, and for medications that have suicidal symptoms specifically as a side effect, we've seen almost a doubling of that over the last 10 years. Um, so, you know, that's pretty uh, but it, alarming. Uh, now, I'm no math major, uh, but if double is the, the amount in the past 10 years and we're seeing an increase in 30% in suicides, and your study says that one in three people are on these medications, those numbers seem to start to add up into a consistent thing. Again, that's just, um, it it seems to imply, at least again, that this is something we should be looking at. Now, are are there any studies that you know of that are being done or have been done to look into people who have committed suicide to whether they've been taking these kind of medications? You know, I'm not aware of a study like that, but I think it's an important study to... Um, conduct. Um, you know, every time I hear a story of someone who uh, committed suicide or attempted suicide, I always wonder as a pharmacist, as a researcher, you know, what medications they were on, especially if they have no history of depression or mental health issues. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I haven't read a study that looked at that specifically, but I think it's an important study, or at least an evaluation that needs to be done. Doctor, one of the things that struck me about this, looking at what you wrote, is that these are not exotic medications with long, long names that nobody can understand and would take. We're talking about birth control and painkillers and antacids and things that everybody is taking. So if everybody else is taking them, how harmful can they be, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, that's the thought process, I would think, for many people. If everyone else takes Tylenol or whatever else, it, how bad can it be for me? Right. So, you know, a lot of the drugs are commonly used um, and... Some of them are, you know, so beta blockers, they're kind of well recognized. They may cause um, depression in some patients. And that's, uh, those are medications for high blood pressure. Um, and hormone oral contraceptives or hormonal replacement therapy, the same thing. They're a little more recognized to have that. But I think what's more important is that a lot of these drugs are not just commonly used, um, but they also may not, it may not be recognized the adverse effect of depression or suicidal symptoms is less um, recognized by both healthcare professionals and patients. So, 
you know, people may not know that they actually cause depression and they don't know because it's not as clearly labeled. You know, there's issues with drug labeling. Um, and I always give the example of when you pick up a prescription at the pharmacy, you know, if it has certain adverse effects or usually on the label or in a package insert or a medication guide, um, or on the actual bottle, say, take this with food, it may cause drowsiness, you know, may impair driving. But given how widely used drugs with depression are, I think um, improving the labeling or communication of the risks to patients is important. Uh, you know, and, and also recognizing this, even if they have that risk, not everyone will experience that risk. That's also important to recognize. Um, these are potential side effects. Not everyone will experience them. But what we found is that if you use more and more of these medications, we specifically looked at three or more, the, your risk for depression or reporting concurrent depression is three times more than if you didn't use any of these medications. Well, I opened up a bottle of, I can't remember what it was, some sort of tablet recently. It was an over-the-counter or in non-prescription. And inside was a piece of paper that was all folded up. And when you unfolded it, it was quite a big piece of paper in tiny, tiny writing, giving me all the details. I would bet almost every dollar I have that nobody reads that. Because you buy right. this, and you figure... research to show that. Pardon me? There's research to show that most patients R- don't read those leaflets, yeah. If it's available without a prescription, first of all, surely it's safe. So I don't need to read all that, as I'm sure the thinking. And second of all, I don't know who has... If a doctor prescribes it, well, surely the doctor knows. So he's not going to prescribe something for me that's dangerous. So I'm just going to take it. Right. So that's not always the case. You know, sometimes prescriptions are given for reasons. Um, and the ben- there are benefits to them. So for some of these medications that are used to treat high blood pressure, which is a common chronic condition. Uh, but at the same time, being aware, there's d- different types of antihypertensives. So if a patient started on one and they develop depression symptoms, symptoms of depression, then it's important for them to communicate those side effects to their doctor who can then switch them maybe to another drug where they won't be experiencing the same symptoms. Yeah, it can create, obviously, a quandary because you're taking, you're, uh, presumably, you're taking these to solve a problem or to try and help with a problem that could create another problem. So really, you're left in this position of which is the worst option, I guess, of what you want to do. Right. There has to be a balance in terms of the benefits and the risks. It sounds, though, in some cases, without even necessarily knowing it, that we are medicating ourselves into sickness. And again, not intentionally, but this is what we don't even really notice, and and we're making ourselves sick by trying to make ourselves better. Mm -hmm. Do you think that doctors generally warn people sufficiently? Do they, do people, is this one of the things that the doctor would do a good job generally that you found to tell people, look, there's a real possibility of depression with this, or is depression still considered one of the smaller side effects, so it sort of gets left behind? So we didn't really study that. We didn't look at that. But I think generally speaking, you know, it varies. Different doctors do things differently. It's the practice of medicine. Um, And, you know, I think, again, awareness of depression as an adverse effect of drug of a drug or any drug or medication um, may be recognized for some classes but not for a lot of classes and given that we found that a lot of medications have this as an adverse effect and when they're used together that that risk is heightened I think more awareness of that is is important and I don't think that currently is um, you know 
I don't think a lot of doctors right now know that all these medications have, and I don't think it's, I don't think pharmacists know. Mm. Not every, I mean, there's a lot of medications out there and we can't know uh, the adverse, I mean, depression is just one of many adverse effects. Um, And I think the problem is more in the software that's used in the dispensing and in the prescribing. Does it make it easy to know these things like, you know, patient might, this patient is on multiple medications that could cause depression. You know, they need further evaluation. Um, so there's some system changes that need to really happen to make it easier to recognize potentially patients that could be at risk and educate them about those risks. Dr. Dina Dima Cato uh, from University of Illinois at Chicago, thank you for the time. Really appreciate it today. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Back from vacation, back live on the air on 900 CHML here, just in time for a very interesting debate on City Council about what to do about Ward 7. Now, not the ward itself. They're not going to get rid of the ward, in case you're wondering. If you're in Ward 7, they're not going to obliterate you from the city map. But Councillor Donna Skelly, do we still call her Councillor? Donna Skelly now won election in the provincial election in Flamborough. And as a result, she is no longer at the council table. She is now a provincial politician, which leaves the Ward 7 seat open. And the question becomes, what to do about this? How to fill that seat? Uh, My understanding is that you are supposed to fill it. You're not really supposed to just allow that seat to sit open for an elongated period of time. And we do have June to July, July to August, August to September, almost four months before the, the municipal election is October 22. So we've got some time left. It's not an insignificant amount of time. I don't know how much is going to be done in that time. Nonetheless, they are now in the process. Uh, a motion apparently is being brought forward today to discuss how to do this. How should Donna Skelly's seat be filled? Now, there are different proposals that are being put forward, and I want to hear from you on this one, 905-645-3221 or star 9900. When you hear one of these that you like or if you have your own idea of how this should be done, because there are several things that are being mentioned as a way to do this. Nobody is talking about a by-election. Thank goodness. Not that I don't agree with democracy. I do. I do agree with voting. I do agree with balloting and the public having their say, but considering that we have a full election coming in four months, I do not want to pay tax dollars to have a prolonged by-election that we pay all the money for, that we go to all the trouble for, and then basically as soon as that person is sworn in, their term is up. Not really interested in that. If you were going to have a special election that somehow would allow that person to be in now and stay right through the next four years, fine, but you can't do that. So we're not going to be doing that one. So what are the other alternatives? Well, there has been a suggestion that the recently defeated, recently deposed Ted McMeekin, longtime provincial politician, be asked to come in and fill that seat for the next little while. Interesting idea. Ted McMeekin is a generally well-respected gentleman from this community, has done a lot politically, knows his way around politics, would be an interesting choice and certainly knows his way around the city. The idea to simply promote or appoint him to that role would be, I suppose, not dissimilar to what happened when Bob Morrow was brought in 
to fill a vacant seat not that long ago, former mayor Bob Morrow, who had been out of politics for a period of time when he was brought in to do that. There's one suggestion. Another would be to go to whoever finished second in the Ward 7 by-election, because Donna Skelly did not win in an election, she won in a by-election, to go and take that seat, go to the second-place finisher. That's an interesting idea. A third one, which Councillor Matthew Green has brought forward today, uh, says that he says the only replacement, he said on Twitter today, uh, the only replacement I will support is one that is selected by a fair, open, and transparent process, including submitted applicants with open interviews. So if you want to be the Ward 7 councillor, we're going to have a city hall interview process, I guess. I, I presume the way he's saying it, out in the open. We'll interview everybody. So we could have 500 people, I suppose, who want to be a counselor for a few months. Why not? We're going to interview everybody and we're going to decide on someone. What do you think of that idea? Interesting. Do you have another idea for it? We've got to come up with somebody for this thing. Doris joins me now on the Scott Radley Show. Doris, how are you tonight? I'm fine. Glad you're back. Why, thank you very much. Some people apparently thought I was lost or fired. And now, fired is plausible, but I wasn't. <laughs> um, anyway, thank you, Doris. Appreciate that. What do you think about this? How should this seat be filled properly and reasonably painlessly? The first suggestion that you did, and they've, they've mentioned it several times on the radio, Ted McMeekin, uh, Brad Clark the former mayor, Larry Vianney, all the people who have previously been elected and know that they would know what to do around council. The number two was no, because the person who is, was second to, uh, to Donna Scully is planning to run in, a, in the next election. Therefore, it would, be a dis- it would be an advantage for him to be sitting there and everybody seeing him. So the answer was, no, he shouldn't. He's going to run let him run in the other election. The third suggestion that was done today, good Lord, no. <laughs> Why not? Because these individuals will have their learning curve to even function in, in council would be far greater than the four months that they're going to be there. So let's have someone who has been doing it before. Uh, the other point I would make, Doris, on the third suggestion, and I'm I'm with you, I don't really love the third suggestion, is... We want, I think, council to be not a group that works as a pack. We don't want it to be hunting like a bunch of dogs that all share the same motivation. And what you will have, I would assume, if you're going to be doing interviews and then council is going to be choosing based on those interviews who you take is the majority of council will, I would think, choose someone who thinks and has political motivations more similar to theirs. That doesn't, to me answer the question of what the public would want or what the ward would want. That just says what the majority of council wants to fit their mandate. But also that person may not say, oh, they'll take the job knowing in their mind that they're going to run for council anyway. So again, this group, this person will also have the advantage of number two choice. Doris, thank you for your call. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thanks. We'll take a quick break. We're going to continue with this. If you have a thought on this, I want to hear from you. What's the way to replace this council seat? It's an interesting discussion because potentially it could be you. If number three actually happens, you could put your name forward. You could get an interview from city councillors. And you, listener Bob, listener Sally, listener Doris, you could be our next councillor. I'm not sure if that's a 
comforting thought <laughs> or a scary thought. Depends who the listener is. We trust all of you. Believe me, we love and trust all of you. Just not sure I want every one of you on council or me for that matter. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Donna Skelly has won the provincial election. She is now moving on to Queen's Park. That leaves the seat open around Ward 7. It's too long a time. Four months is too long a time, I think, and I think the the feeling is, too long a time to leave the seat simply vacant. If it was a month or two, maybe. But it's a third of a year. Even though it's an election year, it's still a third of a year. There will be business done. There will be important decisions to be made. Ward 7 needs to have representation around the council table. So what do you do? How do you fill it? We've thrown out a number of proposals that have been made, a number of ideas that have been thrown out there. Appoint somebody who has familiarity with politics. Ted McMeekin's name was thrown out there. Larry DeAnne, Brad Clark, others. Go to the second place finisher. Have... uh, Matt Green, Councillor Matt Green's proposal is allow people to apply. I think this is, I want to not misrepresent what he's saying, but from what I understand, allow people to apply and have council do interviews and choose who it's going to be. Now, to go to the second one for just a second, the idea of the second place finisher, this is a, uh, a suggestion that has been endorsed by, not surprisingly, the second place finisher behind Donna Skelly in the municipal by-election a couple years ago. Uh, John Paul Danko is his name. Donna Skelly won that election. There were, now there were, uh, what was it, like 22 candidates, something like that. I can't remember the exact number. uh, number. Donna Skelly won with 1,967 seats. John Paul Danko was second with 1,875. He was within 100 seats of her. After him, it was another... 350 and then down by another 700. So there were really only three people with solid results in that. And John Paul Danko was by far the closest. So do we simply, now he is running in Ward 8 in the upcoming, he's announced he's going to run in Ward 8 in the upcoming election. Does that give him an unfair advantage? Is that unfair for him to get that? I think the bigger issue is not about fairness, I think the bigger issue is about can somebody, it takes time to learn how city council works, how city hall works, how to finesse your way and work your way around there. Can somebody be effective to come in with only four months till the next election and with him planning to run in the next election so you know he's going to have time on the campaign trail? Is there time for someone to come in, learn how it works, and be effective? Or do you need someone who already can come in hitting the ground running just to fill? That's why they chose Bob Morrow last time to fill an empty seat. Fred joins me now. Fred, how are you tonight? Not bad. Glad to hear you back on your show. Thanks, Fred. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. I want to see Brad Clark run. He's a good guy. I'm surprised that he didn't become mayor, but I find that he's very knowledgeable, seeing that he was in uh, government before and then ran for city council. And I think he would be good there because he knows what goes on at city council. Fred, I appreciate the call. Thanks for that. Thank you. Uh, now, here's the, here's the thought on Brad Clark. And, and you hear Brad Clark on this show regularly. If you were to choose Brad Clark, those who are capital or small L liberals would be up in arms because Brad has run and served as a conservative. If you chose Ted McMeekin, there would be some, respected as both those men are, there would be some conservative small and large C who would be screaming because now you've put another person on there who fills the conservative mantra, who holds that position, who will endorse political, uh, uh, liberal 
political positions. Same with Larry DeAnne. The difficulty with choosing someone who has um, entrenched party line political stripes is that you are going to create disagreements. Bob Morrow, while he may have had political leanings, everybody does, Bob Morrow was known as the mayor of the city of Hamilton primarily. He was very passable and very believable as an independent candidate. He was simply a guy who was a city councilor, not as a member of a political specific party. 905-645-3221 905-645-3221 or star 9900 if you'd like into this one. What would be the right way? None of them are perfect. The, well, I'll tell you what. The easiest way would be simply to say we're just not going to fill it. It's too much of a nightmare because the third option, I'm jumping around here, but the third option, the one that was presented by Matthew Green to say we are going to allow people to apply and we're going to interview, what happens if you get 200 people who apply for this? Who decides who's going to whittle down? Can you possibly, let's say you get that number. Can you possibly have somebody outside of council then whittle down who is eligible or not? I don't think so. Because if the whole point is for transparent and open discussions, how do you then have someone in the back room decide who doesn't get an interview? Defeats the whole purpose. So you would then have city council spending all their time doing job interviews for a council seat. You would have to put some sort of criteria on it. Yeah, I would think. Right? Janet, how are you tonight? I'm good. How are you? Great. Thanks for calling. What do you think on this? What's the right answer for this? Do you know what? I kind of thought that uh, the guy that came in second was was right. But I also kind of think, why bother for four months? By the time anybody gets kind of oriented and finds out what's going on, it's going to be time for the election. He's going to be campaigning anyway. And the other thing is that I think it's really, really slimy of Donna Skelly that she did not resign her seat on council as soon as she decided to run for for uh, the provincial campaign because she spent a lot of her time campaigning and it would have allowed somebody else to have more time to get to get familiar with the council. I, I'm not going to use the word slimy because it is fully yeah. with, it's fully within the rules. And that yeah. said, I disagree with that rule. I would no. love for the rule to be changed. And for you, if you are going to run, to have to step down immediately. I'm with you, you on should. that one, Janet. You should, yeah. Th- thank you for the call. I appreciate All it. All righty, bye now. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. We're going to keep rolling with this because we got a lot of people who want to chat about this idea. But what to do with the Ward 7 seat that now has been vacated by Donna Skelly because she's moved to Queen's Park. Different suggestions. Everything from don't fill it to fill it with a second-place finisher, to fill it with someone who knows their way around municipal, provincial politics for easy transition, to fill it with somebody that city council has chosen out of an interview process of pretty much anybody in the city who would want to jump in. They are all interesting proposals. They all have benefits. They certainly all have pitfalls. There's none of them that are perfect. In fact, there's none of them, I would argue, that are even close to perfect. But what do you do about it? Now, just before we move on, I want to take some more calls. 905-645-3221 or star 9900 if you want to get into this one. Just before the break, Janet was saying that she thought it was, I think she used the word slimy of Donna Skelly not to step down when she decided to run for office. Now, what Donna Skelly and Judy Partridge, by the way, because they both ran against each other, two counselors, 
did was entirely legal. This is completely allowed. So there is nothing slimy about what any of, the, any of them did. This is completely within the rules. So I have no problem with them doing that. However, as I said, I do believe that that rule should be changed. I do believe that if you were to make a decision that you are going to run for higher office, I do believe that you should be required immediately to vacate your seat. I don't think that's an unreasonable position to take. I think that that's something that should be the case all over the place. No matter what level of politics you're in, if you decide you're going to run for higher office, you step away, you resign, you put all your, you're, you're basically, if you're a poker player, you're going all in. You're not going to play a small hand and try and keep a lot of your pot. You're going to go all in. I think that's the way it should be done. And if you lose, then I'm sorry, you're, you can run in the election again next time. That's what I think. But as far as Judy Partridge and Donna Skelly, they did nothing wrong at all, according to the rules. Bill joins me now. Bill, how are you tonight? Oh, very good, Scott. Uh, welcome back. I missed you. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. You know what? I was going to say, like Fred did, uh, Brad Clark's good if he could do it, but uh, you said there was reasons why he shouldn't. <laughs> well, I, I think it, it, the reasons for Brad Clark, and I, I like Brad. I, I certainly do, Me and too, I think he would yeah. do a great job. Me too. But I understand for sure that if Brad were to get in, those who are small L or, or philosophically liberal will yeah. feel very slighted that they've chosen someone who will probably take positions antithetical to what they would support. Oh, because he's PC like Donna was. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But what about that, that Danko man, if he could do it? <laughs> well, and so the the challenge, I would think, with the second place finisher, with John Paul Danko, is right. you have four yeah. months before yeah. the election, four months before your term would then be up, can you learn how to be an effective representative at City Council for Ward 7 in that period of time? Oh, that, he's running again, is he? Is he, he is. But regardless of whether he is or isn't, he has not been around that council table before. Well, he that's does, true, yeah. So yeah, he would be... With those. <laughs> he, there would be a huge learning curve, and I don't know how effective a person like that can maybe. I mean, I'm sure he's a very smart guy, You're right. Yeah. but that's still, that's an awful lot to ask someone to do while you're learning on the job. That's true, yes. Well, that's my two uh, suggestions. Bill, I really appreciate the call. Thank you for that. Thanks very much, Scott. Let me go to Amanda. Amanda, how are you tonight? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. What do you think about this? What's the best answer? So I would think that the best answer uh, would be kind of a variation of the interview process, but with strict conditions to reduce the amount of people that would be applying or would be able to apply. And what would um, those be? Because I think there could be hundreds of people think, hey, this would be great. There could. There could. But I think that given where we live, first of all, I think that applicants should be limited or restricted to someone that lives within the ward. Um, yeah. I think that it would be appropriate to request um, letters of recommendations from different community services and things like that to show that that person, that applicant, is active in their community and can speak um, or, or can act with fiduciary duty to represent the people within that ward. But most importantly, I think that uh, any applicant would need to demonstrate some type of experience, whether working on a board of directors, whether working uh, with a group in a similar fashion. Uh, in Hamilton, we have a huge amount of cooperative business models and businesses that run um, strictly by a board of directors elected by the members within those businesses. And I think that those people could bring a lot to, to the uh, to the, uh, the council. 
I agree with you 100% on that poll, on that position, Amanda, that it should be someone who's demonstrated an ability to do that. Again, let me throw my devil's advocate position into here. There would immediately be those who would say, I'd like to apply, and the democratic system in our country demands that anybody can run for office, not just someone with a business background. I think you would probably run in then to some problems if you were to suddenly say who can or can't do it if you go down that road. If that becomes, again, a tougher one. And the last thing you want as a city council is to spend the entire four months that you're supposed to have someone sitting around the table in a fight about who shouldn't be allowed to be there. Oh, I agree. I agree. It is, if, if there is not enough restrictions placed, then it would be a waste of time. There's only four months. But I definitely don't think that that seat should go empty. Because uh, that's the that's going to be missing. And I think it's, ex- it's, ex- it's crucial to have all seats by council filled at all times. Amanda, I appreciate it. Maybe, how would you like to have it? Can, if I could nominate you, would you take it? Uh, I would take it in the heartbeat. I've sat on many boards. There you go. Amanda, thanks for the call. It's, uh, I'd love to still hear from you. Radley at 900CHML.com. How would you fill this seat? What's the best way? Or if you have your own unique way, if you come up with a really interesting one, we'll go back to this one. We'll talk about it again. If you can find one that is out of the box, love to hear from you. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.